Lecture 10, Part 1 of the Varieties of Religious Experience. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. Lecture 10, Conversion Concluded. Part 1. In this lecture, we have to finish the subject of conversion, considering at first those striking instantaneous instances of which St. Paul's is the most eminent, and in which, often, amid tremendous emotional excitement or perturbation of the senses, a complete division is established in the twinkling of an eye between the old life and the new. Conversion of this type is an important phase of religious experience, owing to the part which it has played in Protestant theology, and it behooves us to study it conscientiously on that account. I think I had better cite two or three of these cases before proceeding to a more generalized account. One must know concrete instances first, for, as Professor Agassiz used to say, one can see no farther into a generalization than just so far as one's previous acquaintance with particulars enables one to take it in. I will go back, then, to the case of our friend Henry Alleny, and quote his report of the 26th of March, 1775, on which his poor divided mind became unified for good. Quote, As I was about sunset, wandering in the fields, lamenting my miserable, lost, and undone condition, and almost ready to sink under my burden, I thought I was in such a miserable case as never any man was before. I returned to the house, and when I had got to the door, just as I was stepping off the threshold, the following impressions came into my mind like a powerful but small still voice. You have been seeking, praying, reforming, laboring, reading, hearing, and meditating, and what have you done by it towards your salvation? Are you any nearer to conversion now than when you first began? Are you any more prepared for heaven? or fitter to appear before the impartial bar of God than when you first began to seek? It brought such conviction on me that I was obliged to say that I did not think I was one step nearer than at first, but was much condemned, as much exposed, and as miserable as before. I cried out within myself, O oh Lord God, I am lost, and if thou, O oh Lord, Dost not find out some new way, I know nothing of, I shall never be saved, for the ways and methods I have prescribed to myself have all failed me, and I am willing they should fail. O Lord, have mercy! O Lord, have mercy! These discoveries continued until I went into the house and sat down. After I sat down, being all in confusion, like a drowning man that was just giving up to sink, and almost in an agony, I turned very suddenly round in my chair, and seeing part of an old Bible lying in one of the chairs, I caught hold of it in great haste, and opened it without any premeditation, cast my eyes on the thirty-eighth psalm, which was the first time I ever saw the word of God. It took hold of me with such power that it seemed to go through my whole soul, so that it seemed as if God was praying in, with, and for me. About this time, my father called the family to attend prayers. I attended, but paid no regard to what he said in his prayer, but continued praying in those words of the psalm. Cried I, O oh, help me, help me, thou Redeemer of souls, and save me, or I am gone for ever. Thou canst this night, if thou pleasest, with one drop of thy blood atone for my sins, and appease the wrath of an angry God. At that instant of time, when I gave all up to him to do with me as he pleased, and was willing that God should rule over me at his pleasure, redeeming love broke into my soul with repeated scriptures, with such power that my whole soul seemed to be melted down with love. The burden of guilt and condemnation was gone, darkness was expelled, my heart humbled and filled with gratitude, and my whole soul, that was a few minutes ago groaning under mountains of death, 
and crying to an unknown god for help, was now filled with immortal love, soaring on the wings of faith, freed from the chains of death and darkness, and crying out, My Lord and my God, thou art my rock and my fortress, my shield and my high tower, my life, my joy, my present and my everlasting portion. Looking up, I thought I saw that same light, for he had on more than one previous occasion seen subjectively a bright blaze of light. Though it appeared different, and as soon as I saw it, the design was opened to me, according to his promise, and I was obliged to cry out, Enough, enough, O blessed God! The work of conversion, the change, and the manifestations of it are no more disputable than that light which I see, or anything that ever I saw. In the midst of all my joys, in less than half an hour after my soul was set at liberty, the Lord discovered to me my labor in the ministry and called to preach the gospel. I cried out, Amen, Lord, I'll go. Send me, send me. I spent the greatest part of the night in ecstasies of joy, praising and adoring the Ancient of Days for his free and unbounded grace. After I had been so long in this transport and heavenly frame that my nature seemed to require sleep, I thought to close my eyes for a few moments. Then the devil stepped in and told me that if I went to sleep, I should lose it all, and when I should awake in the morning, I would find it to be nothing but a fancy and delusion. I immediately cried out, O oh Lord God, if I am deceived, undeceive me. I then closed my eyes for a few minutes, and seemed to be refreshed with sleep, and when I awoke, my first inquiry was, Where is my God? And in an instant of time, my soul seemed to awaken, and with God, and surrounded by the arms of everlasting love. About sunrise, I arose with joy to relate to my parents what God had done for my soul, and declare to them the miracle of God's unbounded grace. I took a Bible to show them the words that were impressed by God on my soul the evening before. But when I came to open the Bible, it appeared all new to me. I so longed to be useful in the cause of Christ in preaching the gospel, that it seemed as if I could not rest any longer, but go I must, and tell the wonders of redeeming love. I lost all taste for carnal pleasures, and carnal company, and was enabled to forsake them. Close quote. Young Mr. Alleny, after the briefest of delays, and with no book-learning but his Bible, and no teaching save that of his own experience, became a Christian minister, and thenceforward his life was fit to rank, for its austerity and single-mindedness, with that of the most devoted saints. But happy as he became in his strenuous way, he never got his taste for even the most innocent carnal pleasures back. We must class him, like Bunyan and Tolstoy, among those upon whose soul the iron of melancholy left a permanent imprint. His redemption was into another universe than his mere natural world, and life remained for him a sad and patient trial. Years later, we can find him making such an entry as this in his diary. Quote, On Wednesday the 12th, I preached at a wedding, and had the happiness thereby to be the means of excluding carnal mirth. Close quote. The next case I will give is that of a correspondent of Professor Leuba, printed in the latter's article, already cited, in Volume 6 of the American Journal of Psychology. The subject was an Oxford graduate, the son of a clergyman, and the story resembles, in many points, the classic case of Colonel Gardiner, which everybody may be supposed to know. Here it is, somewhat abridged. Quote, Between the period of leaving Oxford and my conversion, I never darkened the door of my father's church, although I lived with him for eight years, making what money I wanted by journalism, and spending it in a high carousel with any one who would sit with me and drink it away. So I lived, sometimes drunk for a week together, and then a terrible repentance, and would not touch a drop for a whole month. In all this period, 
that is, up to thirty-three years of age, I never had a desire to reform on religious grounds. But all my pangs were due to some terrible remorse I used to feel after a heavy carousel, the remorse taking the shape of regret after my folly in wasting my life in such a way, a man of superior talents and education. This terrible remorse turned me gray in one night, and whenever it came upon me, I was perceptibly grayer the next morning. What I suffered in this way is beyond the expression of words. It was hellfire in all its most dreadful tortures. Often did I vow that if I got over this time, I would reform. Alas, in about three days I fully recovered, and was as happy as ever. And so it went on for years, but with a physique like a rhinoceros I always recovered, and as long as I let drink alone, no man was as capable of enjoying life as I was. I was converted in my own bedroom in my father's rectory house at precisely three o'clock in the afternoon of a hot July day, July 13th, 1886. I was in perfect health, having been off from the drink for nearly a month. I was in no way troubled about my soul. In fact, God was not in my thoughts that day. A young lady friend sent me a copy of Professor Drummond's Natural Law in the Spiritual World, asking me my opinion of it as a literary work only. Being proud of my critical talents and wishing to enhance myself in my new friend's esteem, I took the book to my bedroom for quiet, intending to give it a thorough study and then write her of what I thought of it. It was here that God met me face to face, and I shall never forget the meeting. He that hath the Son hath eternal life. He that hath not the Son hath not life. I had read this scores of times before, but this made all the difference. I was now in God's presence, and my attention was absolutely soldered onto this verse and I was not allowed to proceed with the book till I had fairly considered what these words really involved. Only then was I allowed to proceed, feeling all the while that there was another being in my bedroom, though not seen by me. The stillness was very marvelous, and I felt supremely happy. It was most unquestionably shown me, in one second of time, that I had never touched the Eternal, and that if I died then... I must inevitably be lost. I was undone. I knew it as well as I now know I am saved. The Spirit of God showed it to me in ineffable love. There was no terror in it. I felt God's love so powerfully upon me that only a mighty sorrow crept over me that I had lost all through my own folly. And what was I to do? What could I do? I did not repent even. God never asked me to repent. All I felt was, I am undone, and God cannot help it, although he loves me. No fault on the part of the Almighty. All the time I was supremely happy. I felt like a little child before his father. I had done wrong, but my father did not scold me, but loved me most wondrously. Still, my doom was sealed. I was lost to a certainty, and being naturally of a brave disposition, I did not quail under it, but deep sorrow for the past, mixed with regret for what I had lost, took hold upon me, and my soul thrilled within me to think it was all over. Then there crept in upon me so gently, so lovingly, so unmistakably a way of escape, and what was it after all? the old, old story over again, told in the simplest way. There is no name under heaven whereby ye can be saved except that of the Lord Jesus Christ. No words were spoken to me. My soul seemed to see my Savior in the Spirit. And from that hour to this, nearly nine years now, there has never been in my life one doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father both worked upon me that afternoon in July, both differently, and both in the most perfect love conceivable, and I rejoiced there and then in a conversion so astounding that the whole village heard of it in less than twenty-four hours. But a time of trouble was yet to come. 
The day after my conversion, I went into the hayfield to lend a hand with the harvest, and not having made any promise to God to abstain or drink in moderation only, I took too much and came home drunk. My poor sister was heartbroken, and I felt ashamed of myself and got to my bedroom at once where she followed me, weeping copiously. She said I had been converted and fallen away instantly, but although I was quite full of drink, not muddled, however, I knew that God's work begun in me and was not going to be wasted. About midday I made on my knees the first prayer before God for twenty years. I did not ask to be forgiven. I felt that was no good, for I would be sure to fall again. Well, what did I do? I committed myself to him in the profoundest belief that my individuality was going to be destroyed, that he would take all from me, and I was willing. In such a surrender lies the secret of a holy life. From that hour, drink has had no terrors for me. I never touch it, never want it. The same thing occurred with my pipe. After being a regular smoker from my twelfth year, the desire for it went at once and has never returned. So, with every known sin, the deliverance in each case being permanent and complete. I have had no temptation since conversion, God seemingly having shut out Satan from that course with me. He gets a free hand in other ways, but never on sins of the flesh. Since I gave up to God all ownership in my life, he has guided me in a thousand ways, and has opened my path in a way almost incredible to those who do not enjoy the blessing of a truly surrendered life. Close quote. So much for our graduate of Oxford, in whom you notice the complete abolition of an ancient appetite as one of the conversion's fruits. The most curious record of sudden conversion with which I am acquainted is that of M. Alphonse Ratisbon, a free-thinking French Jew, to Catholicism at Rome in 1842. In a letter to a clerical friend, written a few months later, the convert gives a palpitating account of the circumstances. The predisposing conditions appear to have been slight. He had an elder brother who had been converted and was a Catholic priest. He was himself irreligious and nourished an antipathy to the apostate brother and generally to his cloth. Finding himself at Rome in his twenty-ninth year, he fell in with a French gentleman who tried to make a proselyte out of him, but who succeeded no farther after two or three conversations than to get him to hang, half joculously, a religious medal round his neck, and to accept and read a copy of a short prayer to the Virgin. M. Ratisbon represents his own part in the conversations as having been of a light and chafing order, but he notes the fact that for some days he was unable to banish the words of the prayer from his mind, and that the night before the crisis he had a sort of nightmare in the imagery of which a black cross with no Christ upon it figured. Nevertheless, until noon of the next day he was free in mind and spent the time in trivial conversations. I now give his own words. Quote, if at this time anyone had accosted me, saying, Alphonse, in a quarter of an hour you shall be adoring Jesus Christ as your God and Savior. You shall lie prostrate with your face upon the ground in a humble church. You shall be smiting your breast at the foot of a priest. You shall pass the carnival in a college of Jesuits to prepare yourself to receive baptism ready to give your life for the Catholic faith. You shall renounce the world and its pomps and pleasures, renounce your fortune, your hopes, and if need be, your betrothed. The affections of your family, the esteem of your friends, and the attachment to the Jewish people. You shall have no other aspiration than to follow Christ and bear his cross till death. If, I say, a prophet had come to me with such a prediction, I should have judged that only one person could be more mad than he, 
whosoever, namely, might believe in the possibility of such senseless folly becoming true. And yet that folly is at present my only wisdom, my sole happiness. Coming out of the café, I met the carriage of Monsieur B., the proselytizing friend. He stopped and invited me in for a drive, but first asked me to wait for a few minutes whilst he attended to some duty at the church of San Andrea del Frat. Instead of waiting in the carriage, I entered the church myself to look at it. The church of San Andrea was poor, small, and empty. I believe that I found myself there almost alone. No work of art attracted my attention, and I passed my eyes mechanically over its interior without being arrested by any particular thought. I can only remember an entirely black dog which went trotting and turning before me as I mused. In an instant the dog had disappeared. The whole church had vanished. I no longer saw anything, or more truly I saw, oh my God, one thing alone. Heavens, how, how can I speak of it? Oh, no, human words cannot attain to expressing the inexpressible. Any description, however sublime it might be, could be but a profanation of the unspeakable truth. I was there, prostrate on the ground, bathed in my tears, with my heart beside itself, when M.B. called me back to life, I could not reply to the questions which followed from him one upon the other. But finally, I took the medal which I had on my breast, and with all the effusion of my soul, I kissed the image of the Virgin, radiant with grace which it bore. Oh, indeed, it was she, it was indeed she. What he had seen had been a vision of the Virgin. I did not know where I was. I did not know whether I was Alphonse or another. I only felt myself changed and believed myself another me. I looked for myself in myself and did not find myself. In the bottom of my soul I felt an explosion of the most ardent joy. I could not speak. I had no wish to reveal what had happened. But I felt something solemn and sacred within me which made me ask for a priest. I was led to one, and there, alone, after he had given me the positive order, I spoke as best I could, kneeling and with my heart still trembling. I could give no account to myself of the truth of which I had acquired a knowledge and a faith. All that I can say is that in an instant the bandage had fallen from my eyes, and not one bandage only, but the whole manifold of bandages in which I had been brought up. One after another, they rapidly disappeared, even as the mud and ice disappear under the rays of the burning sun. I came out as from a sepulchre, from an abyss of darkness, and I was living, perfectly living. But I wept, for at the bottom of that gulf I saw the extreme of misery from which I had been saved by an infinite mercy, and I shuddered at the sight of my iniquities stupefied, melted, overwhelmed with wonder and with gratitude. You may ask me how I came to this new insight, for truly I had never opened a book of religion, nor even read a single page of the Bible, and the dogma of original sin is either entirely denied or forgotten by the Hebrews of today, so that I had thought so little about it that I doubt whether I ever knew its name. But how came I, then, to this perception of it? I can answer nothing save this, that on entering that church I was in darkness altogether, and on coming out of it I saw the fullness of the light. I can explain the change no better than by the simile of a profound sleep, or the analogy of one born blind who should suddenly open his eyes to the day. He sees but cannot define the light which bathes him and by means of which he sees the objects which excite his wonder. If we cannot explain physical light, how can we explain the light which is the truth itself? And I think I remain within the limits of veracity, 
when I say that without having any knowledge of the letter of religious doctrine, I now intuitively perceived its sense and spirit. Better than if I saw them, I felt those hidden things. I felt them by the inexplicable effects they produced in me. It all happened in my interior mind, and those impressions, more rapid than thought, shook my soul, revolved and turned it, as it were, in another direction, towards other aims, by other paths. I express myself badly. But do you wish, Lord, that I should enclose in poor and barren words sentiments which the heart alone can understand? Close quote. I might multiply cases almost indefinitely, but these will suffice to show you how real, definite, and memorable an event a sudden conversion may be to him who has the experience. Throughout the height of it, he undoubtedly seems to himself a passive spectator or undergore of an astounding process performed upon him from above. There is too much evidence for this for any doubt of it to be possible. Theology, combining this fact with the doctrines of election and grace, has concluded that the Spirit of God is with us at these dramatic moments in a peculiarly miraculous way, unlike what happens at any other juncture of our lives. At that moment, it believes an absolutely new nature is breathed into us, and we become partakers of the very substance of the deity. That the conversion should be instantaneous seems called for on this view, and the Moravian Protestants appear to have been the first to see this logical consequence. The Methodists soon followed suit, practically if not dogmatically, and a short time ere his death, John Wesley wrote, quote, in London alone, I found 652 members of our society who were exceeding clear in their experience, and whose testimony I could see no reason to doubt. And every one of these, without a single exception, has declared that his deliverance from sin was instantaneous, that the change was wrought in a moment. Had half of these, or one-third, or one in twenty, declared it was gradually wrought in them, I should have believed this with regard to them, and thought that some were gradually sanctified and some instantaneously. But, as I have not found, in so long a space of time, a single person speaking thus, I cannot but believe that sanctification is commonly, if not always, an instantaneous work. Close quote. All this, while the more usual sects of Protestantism have set no such store by instantaneous conversion. For them, as for the Catholic Church, Christ's blood, the sacraments, and the individual's ordinary religious duties are practically supposed to suffice to his salvation, even though no acute crisis of self-despair and surrender followed by relief should be experienced. For Methodism, on the contrary, unless there have been a crisis of this sort, salvation is only offered, not effectively received, and Christ's sacrifice, in so far set forth, is incomplete. Methodism surely here follows, if not the healthier-minded, yet on the whole the profounder spiritual instinct. The individual models which it has set up as typical and worthy of imitation are not only the more interesting dramatically, but psychologically they have been the more complete. In the fully evolved revivalism of Great Britain and America, we have, so to speak, the codified and stereotyped procedure to which this way of thinking has led. In spite of the unquestionable fact that saints of the once-born type exist, that there may be a gradual growth in holiness without a cataclysm, in spite of the obvious leakage, as one may say, of much more natural goodness into the scheme of salvation, Revivalism has always assumed that only its own type of religious experience can be perfect. You must first be nailed on the cross of natural despair and agony, and then, in the twinkling of an eye, be miraculously released. It is natural to those who personally have traversed such an experience should carry away a feeling of its being a miracle rather than a natural process. Voices are often heard lights seen, or visions witnessed, 
automatic motor phenomena occur, and it always seems, after the surrender of the personal will, as if an extraneous higher power has flooded in and taken possession. Moreover, the sense of renovation, safety, cleanness, rightness, can be so marvelous and jubilant as well, to warrant one's belief in a radically new substantial nature. The New England Puritan Joseph Alleyne writes, quote, Conversion is not the putting in a patch of holiness, but with the true convert, holiness is woven into all his powers, principles, and practice. The sincere Christian is quite a new fabric, from the foundation to the top stone. He is a new man, a new creature. Jonathan Edwards says in the same strain, quote, Those gracious influences which are the effects of the Spirit of God are altogether supernatural, are quite different from anything that unregenerate men experience. They are what no improvement or composition of natural qualifications or principles will ever produce, because they not only differ from what is natural and from everything that natural men experience in degree and circumstances, but also in kind, and are of a nature far more excellent. From hence it follows that in gracious affections there are also new perceptions and sensations entirely different in their nature and kind from anything experienced by the same saints before they were sanctified. The conceptions which the saints have of the loveliness of God, and that kind of delight which they experience in it, are quite peculiar, and entirely different from anything which a natural man can possess, or of which he can form any proper notion. Close quote and that such a glorious transformation as this ought of necessity to be preceded by despair is shown by edwards in another passage he says quote, surely it cannot be unreasonable that before god delivers us from a state of sin and liability to everlasting woe he should give us some considerable sense of the evil from which he delivers us in order that we may know and feel the importance of salvation and be enabled to appreciate the value of what God is pleased to do for us. As those who are saved are successively in two extremely different states, first in a state of condemnation, and then in a state of justification and blessedness, and as God, in the salvation of men, deals with them as rational and intelligent creatures, it appears agreeable to this wisdom that those who are saved should be made sensible of their being, in those two different states. In the first place, that they should be made sensible of their state of condemnation, and afterwards, of their state of deliverance and happiness. Close quote. Such quotations express sufficiently well for our purpose the doctrinal interpretation of these changes. Whatever part suggestion and imitation may have played in producing them in men and women, in excited assemblies, they have at any rate been in countless individual instances in original and unborrowed experience. Were we writing the story of the mind from the purely natural history point of view, with no religious interest whatever, we should still have to write down man's liability to sudden and complete conversion as one of his most curious peculiarities. What now must we ourselves think of this question? Is an instantaneous conversion a miracle in which God is present as he is present in no change of heart less strikingly abrupt? Are there two classes of human beings, even among the apparently regenerate, of which the one class really partakes of Christ's nature, while the other merely seems to do so? Or, on the contrary, may the whole phenomenon of regeneration even in these startling instantaneous examples, possibly be a strictly natural process, divine in its fruits, of course, but in one case more and in another less so, and neither more or less divine in its mere causation and mechanism than any other process, high or low, of man's interior life? Before proceeding to answer this question, I must ask you to listen to some more psychological remarks. At our last lecture, I explained the shifting of men's centers of personal energy within them, and the lighting up of a new crisis of emotion. 
I explained the phenomena as partly due to explicitly conscious processes of thought and will, but as due largely also to the subconscious incubation and maturing of motives deposited by the experiences of life. When ripe, the results hatch out or burst into flower. I have now to speak of the subconscious region, in which such processes of flowering may occur in a somewhat less vague way. I only regret that my limits of time here force me to be so short. The expression field of consciousness has but recently come into vogue in many psychology books. Until quite lately, the unit of mental life which figured most was the single idea supposed to be a definitely outlined thing. But at present, psychologists are tending, first, to admit that the actual unit is more probably the total mental state, the entire wave of consciousness or field of objects present to the thought at any time, and second, to see that it is impossible to outline this wave, this field, with any definiteness. As our mental fields succeed one another, each has its center of interest, around which the objects of which we are less and less attentively conscious fade to a margin so faint that its limits are unassignable. Some fields are narrow fields, and some are wide fields. Usually, when we have a wide field, we rejoice, for we then see masses of truth together, and often get glimpses of relations which we divine rather than see, for they shoot beyond the field into still remoter regions of objectivity, regions which we seem rather to be about to perceive than to perceive actually. At other times, of drowsiness, illness, or fatigue, our fields may narrow almost to a point, and we find ourselves correspondingly oppressed and contracted. Different individuals present constitutional differences in this matter of width of field. Your great organizing geniuses are men with habitually vast fields of mental vision, in which a whole program of future operations will appear dotted out at once, the rays shooting far ahead into definite directions of advance. In common people, there is never this magnificent inclusive view of a topic. They stumble along, feeling their way, as it were, from point to point, and often stop entirely. In certain diseased conditions, consciousness is a mere spark, without memory of the past or thought of the future, and with the present narrowed down to some one simple emotion or sensation of the body. The important fact that this field formula commemorates is the indetermination of the margin. Inattentively realized, as is the matter which the margin contains, it is nevertheless there, and helps both to guide our behavior and to determine the next movement of our attention. It lies around us like a magnetic field, inside of which our center of energy turns like a compass needle, as the present phase of consciousness alters into its successor. Our whole past store of memories floats beyond this margin, ready at a touch to come in, and the entire mass of residual powers, impulses, and knowledges that constitute our empirical self stretches continuously beyond it. So vaguely drawn are the outlines between what is actual and what is only potential at any moment of our conscious life, that it is always hard to say of certain mental elements whether we are conscious of them or not. The ordinary psychology, admitting fully the difficulty of tracing the marginal outline, has nevertheless taken for granted, first, that all the consciousness the person now has, be the same focal or marginal, inattentive or attentive, is there in the field of the moment, all dim and impossible to assign as the latter's outline may be, and second, that what is absolutely extra-marginal is absolutely non-existent, and cannot be a fact of consciousness at all. Having reached this point, I must now ask you to recall what I said in my last lecture about the subconscious life. I said, as you may recollect, that those who first laid stress upon these phenomena could not know the facts as we now know them. My first duty now is to tell you what I meant by such a statement. 
I cannot but think that the most important step forward that has occurred in psychology since I have been a student of that science is the discovery, first made in 1886, that, in certain subjects at least, there is not only the consciousness of the ordinary field, with its usual center and margin, but an addition thereto, in the shape of a set of memories, thoughts, and feelings, which are extra-marginal and outside of the primary consciousness altogether, but yet must be classed as conscious facts of some sort, able to reveal their presence by unmistakable signs. I call this the most important step forward because, unlike the other advances which psychology has made, this discovery has revealed to us an entirely unsuspected peculiarity in the constitution of human nature. No other step forward which psychology has made can proffer any such claim as this. In particular, this discovery of consciousness existing beyond the field, or subliminally, as Mr. Myers terms it, casts light on many phenomena of religious biography. That is why I have to advert to it now, although it is naturally impossible for me in this place to give you any account of this evidence on which the admission of such a consciousness is based. You will find it set forth in many recent books, Binet's Alterations of Personality, being perhaps as good a one as any to recommend. The human material on which the demonstration has been made has so far been rather limited and, in part at least, eccentric, consisting of unusually suggestible hypnotic subjects and of hysteric patients. Yet the elementary mechanisms of our life are presumably so uniform that what is shown to be true in a marked degree of some persons is probably true in some degree of all, and may in a few be true in an extraordinarily high degree. The most important consequence of having a strongly developed ultra-marginal life of this sort is that one's ordinary fields of consciousness are liable to incursions from it of which the subject does not guess the source, and which, therefore, take for him the form of unaccountable impulses to act, or inhibitions of action, of obsessive ideas, or even of hallucinations of sight or hearing. The impulses may take the direction of automatic speech or writing, the meaning of which the subject himself may not understand even while he utters it, and generalizing this phenomenon, Mr. Myers has given the name of automatism, sensory or motor, emotional or intellectual, to this whole sphere of effects, due to uprushes into the ordinary consciousness of energies originating in the subliminal parts of the mind. The simplest instance of an automatism is the phenomenon of post-hypnotic suggestion, so-called. You give to a hypnotized subject, adequately susceptible, in order to perform some designated act, usual or eccentric, it makes no difference, after he wakes from his hypnotic sleep. Punctually, when the signal comes, or the time elapses upon which you have told him that the act must ensue, he performs it. But in so doing, he has no recollection of your suggestion, and he always trumps up an improvised pretext for his behavior if the act be of an eccentric kind. It may even be suggested to a subject to have a vision or to hear a voice at a certain interval after waking. And when the time comes, the vision is seen or the voice heard with no inkling on the subject's part of its source. In the wonderful explorations by Binet, Jeanne, Brouwer, Freud, Mason, Prince, and others, of the subliminal consciousness of patients with hysteria, we have revealed to us whole systems of underground life in the shape of memories of a painful sort which lead a parasitic existence, buried outside of the primary fields of consciousness, and making eruptions thereunto with hallucinations, pains, convulsions, paralyses of feeling and of motion, and the whole procession of symptoms of hysteric disease of body and of mind. Alter or abolish by suggestion these subconscious memories, and the patient immediately gets well. His symptoms were automatisms, in Mr. Meyer's sense of the word. These clinical records sound like fairy tales when one first reads them, yet it is impossible to doubt their accuracy. 
and the path having been once opened by these first observers, similar observations have been made elsewhere. They throw, as I said, a wholly new light upon our natural constitution. And it seems to me that they make a further step inevitable. Interpreting the unknown after the analogy of the known, it seems to me that hereafter, wherever we meet with a phenomenon of automatism, be it motor impulses or obsessive idea or unaccountable caprice or delusion or hallucination, we are bound, first of all, to make search whether it be not an explosion into the fields of ordinary consciousness, of ideas elaborated outside of those fields in subliminal regions of the mind. We should look, therefore, for its source in the subject's subconscious life. In the hypnotic cases, we ourselves create the source by our suggestion, so we know it directly. In the hysteric cases, the lost memories which are the source have to be extracted from the patient's subliminal by a number of ingenious methods, for an account of which you must consult the books. In other pathological cases, insane delusions, for example, or psychopathic obsessions, the source is yet to seek, but by analogy it also should be in subliminal regions which improvements in our methods may yet conceivably put on tap. There lies the mechanism logically to be assumed, that the assumption involves a vast program of work to be done in the way of verification, in which the religious experiences of man must play their part. Footnote. The reader will here please notice that in my exclusive reliance on the last lecture on the subconscious incubation of motives deposited by a growing experience, I followed the method of employing accepted principles of explanation as far as one can. The subliminal region, whatever else it may be, is at any rate a place now admitted by psychologists to exist for the accumulation of vestiges of sensible experience, whether inattentively or attentively registered, and for their elaboration according to ordinary psychological or logical laws into results that end by attaining such a tension that they may at times enter consciousness with something like a burst. It thus is scientific to interpret all otherwise unaccountable invasive alterations of consciousness as results of the tension of subliminal memories reaching the bursting point. But candor obliges me to confess that there are occasional bursts into consciousness of results of which it is not easy to demonstrate any prolonged subconscious incubation. Some of the cases I used to illustrate the sense of presence of the unseen in Lecture 3 were of this order, and we shall see other experiences of the kind when we come to the subject of mysticism. The case of Mr. Bradley, that of M. Rattispone, possibly that of Colonel Gardiner, possibly that of St. Paul, might not be so easily explained in this simple way. The result, then, would have to be ascribed either to a merely physiological nerve storm, a discharging lesion like that of epilepsy, or, in the case it were useful and rational, as in the two latter cases named, to some more mystical or theological hypothesis. I make this remark in order that the reader may realize that the subject is really complex but i shall keep myself as far as possible at present to the more scientific view and only as the plot thickens in subsequent lectures shall i consider the question of its absolute sufficiency as an explanation of all the facts that subconscious incubation explains a great number of them there can be no doubt End footnote. And thus I return to our own specific subject of instantaneous conversions. You remember the cases of Alleny, Bradley, Brainerd, and the graduate of Oxford, converted at three in the afternoon? Similar occurrences abound, some with and some without luminous visions, all with a sense of astonished happiness and of being wrought on by a higher control. If abstracting altogether from the question of their value for the future spiritual life of the individual, we take them on their psychological side exclusively, 
so many peculiarities in them remind us of what we find outside of conversion that we are tempted to class them along with other automatisms and to suspect that what makes the difference between a sudden and a gradual convert is not necessarily the presence of divine miracle in the case of one and something less divine in that of the other but rather a simple psychological peculiarity the fact namely that in the recipient of the more instantaneous grace we have one of those subjects who are in possession of a large region in which mental work can go on subliminally and from which invasive experiences abruptly upsetting the equilibrium of the primary consciousness may come i do not see why methodists need object to such a view pray go back and recollect one of the conclusions to which i sought to lead you in my very first lecture you may remember how i there argued against the notion that the worth of a thing can be decided by its origin our spiritual judgment i said our opinion of the significance and value of a human event or condition must be decided on empirical grounds exclusively if the fruits for life of the state of conversion are good we ought to idealize and venerate it even though it be a piece of natural psychology if not we ought to make short work with it no matter what supernatural being may have infused it well how is it with these fruits if we accept the class of preeminent saints of whom the names illumine history and consider only the usual run of saints the shopkeeping church members and ordinary youthful or middle-aged recipients of instantaneous conversion whether at revivals or in the spontaneous course of methodistic growth you will probably agree that no splendor worthy of a holy supernatural creature fulgurates from them or sets them apart from the mortals who have never experienced that favor were it true that a suddenly converted man as such is as edward says of an entirely different kind from a natural man partaking as he does directly of christ's substance there surely ought to be some exquisite class mark some distinctive radiance attaching even to the lowliest specimen of this genus to which no one of us could remain insensible and which so far as it went would prove him more excellent than ever the most highly gifted among mere natural men footnote edward says elsewhere quote, i am bold to say that the work of god in the conversion of one soul considered together with the source foundation and purchase of it and also the benefit end and eternal issue of it is a more glorious work of god than the creation of the whole material universe Close quote and footnote. but notoriously there is no such radiance converted men as a class are indistinguishable from natural men some natural men even excel some converted men in their fruits and no one ignorant of doctrinal theology could guess by mere everyday inspection of the accidents of the two groups of persons before him that their substance differed as much as divine differs from human substance. End of Lecture 10, Part 1